Good Sunday morning to you, Susie, taking yet another, well, what do they say, well-deserved day of vacation. She'll be back next week. Denny Long, in the meantime, let me uh, introduce you to uh, Dr. Michael Spencer, uh, a doctor I've had the pleasure of knowing for uh, many years. Dr. Spencer, great to hear. I was really excited to hear that you were going to be on the show today. And How have you been? I haven't seen you for a long time. Well, I've been great, Denny, and thank you, and thank you for filling in for Susie this morning again. Oh. It's always my it's always my pleasure for those uh, and, and I know you know the drill, Doctor Spencer. But uh, for those that uh, maybe are uh, don't know that what a top doc you are, t- tell us a little bit about yourself. And uh, of course, we're going to be taking questions either by phone or by text. I'll get you that number in uh, just a moment. But Doctor Michael Spencer is a, a colorectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities. Am I correct? I mean, uh, are you a, also a gastroenterologist? Is that correct, or is, am I am I off to the, on the wrong foot here? Well, you're, you're close, Danny. So I'm a colorectal surgeon, so I've done formal general surgery training and then went on to do additional training at the University of Minnesota in the subspecialty of colorectal surgery. We bridge uh, many of the same disciplines that our gastroenterology colleagues who are internal medicine physicians who have gone on and specialized in GI. They do more of the procedure-based endoscopies, whereas we do more of the surgical-based treatments, the colon resections for colitis or for cancer or things of that nature. So I've been uh, blessed to be part of a uh, private practice group, uh, Colon Rectal Surgery Associates here in the Twin Cities, for the better part of 30 years. I also uh, serve on the Division of Colorectal Surgery at the University of Minnesota and uh, have the post of uh, Clinical Professor of Surgery uh, at the university. We have kind of a unique practice in that we have both our private practice uh, component as well as our academic-based activities at the university. And we have partners who are over at the U. Uh, Many are doing uh, halftime research and other interesting uh, activities over there. And then we have uh, about 15 uh, physicians who practice uh, in the private side in the Twin City and allows us to take some of that uh, interesting work that's being done at the U and try to translate that into uh, better care for the community. Dr. Spencer, where did you grow up? I should know this, but I, I don't know if I've ever asked you. Where you where did you grow up, and where, where did you well, get your medical born, education? I was born in St. Louis, Danny, but uh, spent most of my uh, formative years here in the Twin Cities. Both my parents are uh, Minnesotans, uh, having grown up down in southwest Minnesota. I uh, actually uh, went to Anoka for high school, uh, then to the University of Minnesota, on to uh, Cincinnati to do an MD-PhD, eventually to Mayo for my general surgery training, and then back to the Twin Cities for my colorectal training. And uh, again, fortunate enough to stay here with the group uh, ever since. So it's, uh, it's been a fun and enjoyable career. Well, excellent. Uh, and again, we're glad that, that you joined us today. I know we're, we're around breakfast time, but it's an important topic here. And I know we're going to get a lot of calls and questions about colonoscopies, and, uh, in fact, while we're at it here, let me give the number. It's the phone number. It's also the text number. So if you have a question uh, for Dr. Spencer, if you're just joining us, he is a colon and rectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities, 651-461-9226. You know, we tend to get busy during this hour. So if you have any kind of a question, please call or text before we uh, run out of time, 651 461 
Dr. Spencer, as far as uh, colonoscopies go, I know we've all heard, uh, at least most of us or many of us, over the last year or so, that the age for uh, colonoscopies seems to be getting lower and lower. Is that true? And if it's true, why is that? Well, Denny, it's not getting lower and lower, but it had been 50 years of age for many years. In 2018, the American Cancer Society, along with a consortium of other uh, groups, such as the Colorectal Society and the American College of Gastroenterology, uh, developed a consensus statement uh, based off information and uh, increasing numbers of individuals under the age of 45. So the guidelines in 2018 came out uh, uh, suggesting that patients should begin routine average risk screening at age 45. And again, this was based off the number of people who we were seeing at younger age groups. Now, I, I was thinking about our you know, talk this morning, and I, the youngest individual I've treated with the colon cancer is in their late teens, and the oldest nearly 100. So obviously, just screening people from 45 above isn't going to get everybody. And we generally recommend no routine screening after the age of 45, with, or I'm sorry, after the age of 75, which is also in the consensus statement. Um, obviously, if people are having symptoms or other issues, that puts them into a different category, not an average risk screening. I think the other thing that's imperative is that as people are talking with their physicians and looking at whether or not they should start screening at 45, they need to know their family history because they may not be average risk. They may be higher risk. And this risk stratification obviously is very, very crucial because we will start uh, screening or evaluating some patients even in their early 20s based on family history of uh, HMPCC or FAP, which are syndromes that increase their risk of colorectal cancer. If you have a question this morning for Dr. Michael Spencer, who's a, a colon and rectal surgeon here in the uh, Twin Cities, by all means, call us or text us. We'll be talking about colonoscopies. Maybe, uh, Dr. Spencer, when we come back after this quick break, we can talk about the, the various tests. I know it's always been said that the colonoscopy is uh, the gold standard for uh, for testing. But let's talk about other uh, other uh, tests we may do prior to that, uh, and if you think uh, that's a good idea. And uh, other questions as well. We welcome yours here on a Sunday morning. 651-461-9226 from News Talk 830. This is WCCO. It's a Sunday morning here in 830 WCCO. Denny in for Susie uh, this morning. She'll be back uh, next week. We currently have 60 degrees in the Twin Cities. What are we going for today? High near 85, I guess the warmest day of the week will be probably uh, tomorrow. We're going to get near 91, but uh, more moderating temperatures the rest of this week. So Monday, the hot one. 60 now here in A3OWCCO. If you're just joining us in our health hour, we're uh, having a visit with Dr. Michael Spencer, who is a colon rectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities, answering uh, those kind of questions this morning that you may have at uh, 651 461 9226. We're getting a bunch of text messages right now, Dr. Spencer. But uh, just before the break, I wanted to ask you about the different testing methods and uh, if they're good 
how reliable they are, and I know many of us hear commercials for Cologuard, things like that. What uh, if we if we don't go for the colonoscopy right now? What are our options? Well, Denny, as colorectal cancer is the fourth most common cancer in the United States and the second leading cancer killer, the options for colorectal screening beginning at age 45 for average risk individuals are fecal screening with immunohistochemical studies, basically looking for blood in the stool, some type of DNA testing, which is Cologuard, or a combination of flexible sigmoidoscopy and blood testing or stool testing, and then ultimately colonoscopy. I think it's important to note that if any of the other screening modalities are deemed to be positive, you shouldn't be rechecking those to see if indeed it is positive two out of three times, but to get a colonoscopy. And equally important, as I suggested before the break, we also need to be identifying patients who are at higher risk uh, based on family history, because for them, these other screening modalities are not appropriate. I know we're going to be probably all over the road uh, this morning uh, with uh, questions from our listeners, and that's great. We do want to hear from our listeners. Irritable irritable bowel syndrome, uh, is that real? question is. IBS is very real, Denny, and uh, you ask anybody who struggles or suffers with it, uh, they will tell you it uh, is often kind of uh, poo-pooed, if I may use the uh, term, uh, as a non-diagnostic entity, but it's a real problem, and uh, those who struggle and suffer with it uh, have a difficult time. Um, Unfortunately, there are a number of etiologies uh, for why people get this. And we don't truly understand all of the uh, uh, various problems that this can cause for people and etiologies, but it's very real. Uh, Another question, going back to the Cologuard issue, false positives, the listener wants to know, is that an issue? You know, unfortunately, uh, all tests, uh, even colonoscopy, which is uh, touted as the gold standard, is not 100%. So if somebody has symptoms or other issues, um, they need to kind of recheck with their physician or uh, get additional advice. But we do see false positives and false negatives with any of the testing modalities. Uh, colonoscopy, obviously, if we identify the polyp and uh, or tumor, we can biopsy that, and uh, it should be able to have 100% there. But we may miss small lesions, and so uh, in some cases, uh, even colonoscopy is not perfect. Let's get back to the, you mentioned the family history, how important that is. Uh, if, if one is considering uh, colonoscopy, uh, whatever the age may be, and they thought, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. If they look at their, who should they be looking at as far as uh, any history of uh, of uh, cancer? What well, family members should be? Any of their primary family members uh, would be the first key, and then uh, primary relatives, uh, first-degree relatives, second-degree relatives, and so forth. Uh, many of the cancer syndromes, such as familial polyposis, is a genetic predisposition 
and you can estimate the number of people within that family that will have it. We can even do genetic studies and identify very specifically the uh, gene deletion. It's a 5Q uh, gene deletion that they have, uh, and we can test them for that uh, disease entity. And in that subgroup of patients, uh, we should start screening in their late teens or early 20s because we know that they will develop uh, cancer oftentimes by age 30. A couple of uh, questions kind of are related just to explain about uh, the colon, the procedure of colonoscopy. Uh, if you could explain the preparation and the, and the process itself, what exactly does a person do or have to do? <laughs> uh, well, this is uh, always a challenge. Um, we have changed the process of the prep uh, over the last several years. Uh, one, to try to make it a little bit more friendly for people, but two, to try to get a better quality prep. Obviously, if we are going to screen and evaluate the uh, five feet or so of large bowel, the better the prep, the easier it is to evaluate, and the better the success of identifying particularly small polyps. So it's a combination of the lavage prep, which is something like Golightly or Miralax, which flushes things through. And then we often utilize a stimulatory uh, medication like uh, melchimagnesia or magcitrate to help facilitate uh, even better cleansing. So these days, most people will do a lavage prep the day before and early in the morning prior to the procedure or the night, if they're going to have it very first thing, uh, we'll use some type of cathartic prep to help clear the rest of the uh, material. If you're just joining us, Dr. Michael Spencer, a colorectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities, answering your health questions on our health hour this morning. Dr. Spencer, in your practice and in any literature uh, you've uh, read, are, are we seeing over the years, last 10, 15 years, more Cancer uh, in uh, in in our in the United States specifically. Well, the numbers have held fairly steady, Denny. About fifty thousand deaths annually to colorectal cancer, and approximately one hundred and forty thousand to one hundred and fifty thousand new colon and rectal cancers diagnosed each year. Um, the good news is, as we are identifying patients at an earlier age. Our success with treatments are better, and one has to realize that we're also preventing cancers from forming, but as our population increases, to see this steady number uh, reflects um, that increase in the population. So overall, we're seeing decrease in terms of uh, incidence slightly, um, but the challenging thing is we are seeing a younger population of people uh, some who aren't at high risk with uh, cancers. And uh, this has been kind of perplexing for us, uh, some in their uh, 30s and uh, early 40s, and um, obviously uh, trying to figure out how we can reach those patients before they uh, develop more significant or advanced disease is important. I'm getting a signal here. It's time for a break. We'll have about another half hour of the show to go. Uh, Dr. Michael Spencer, co colorectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities, answering those questions. So I tell you what, as we head to this break, Dr. Spencer, uh, we're getting various, various questions. Maybe you can help me with this one. When we come back from the break, a listener wants to know, uh, is Lynch 
syndrome, the only reason younger people get colon cancer. Maybe you can tell us when we come back what exactly that is and uh, and answer that particular question. If you have a question about colonoscopies and the like, we welcome yours, either by phone or by text this Sunday morning, 651-461-9226. Denny and for Susie this morning, we'll have a look at that forecast and then be back with the show here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Good morning on this Sunday. Denny Long here filling in for Susie Jones, who shall return next Sunday morning. We're in the midst of our health hour. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We're having a chat with Dr. Michael Spencer, who is a colorectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities, answering those type of questions for you. And we have a bunch already, doctor. But when we last broke, just before the break, uh, we had a texter, and boy, we have a bunch more now. Lynch syndrome. The question was, the, uh, is Lynch syndrome the only reason younger people get colon cancer? Uh, what is that? So Lynch syndrome is named after Dr. Henry Lynch, who was one of the early researchers and identified a quadri of patients and families under the age of 50 who had a constellation of cancers. A majority of these were uh, cancers involving the gut, and gynecologic cancers, but they also have increased risk for cancers of the stomach, small intestine, liver, gallbladder, um, and urinary tract as well. So it's one of these things that uh, he noted in a group of patients that they were having cancers at younger ages. Uh, Initially, they were recommending for everyone in those uh, groups to at least start screening 10 years before the uh, in, uh, youngest individual in the family who developed. Uh, but eventually, uh, we've now been able to identify the genetic predispositions. And so uh, Lynch syndrome uh, is still used frequently, uh, but not uh, quite as much uh, within the uh, medical groups. And uh, basically, it's a, a genetic syndrome where we realize that people have increased risk of cancer, not only of the gut, but other areas. Um, and start screening these people at a much earlier age. Uh, We will also do more aggressive surgical uh, intervention for them because we know that other parts of the colon can uh, develop cancers much more readily. Uh, Ovarian cancer being higher risk in these individuals, sometimes we'll end up doing hysterectomy and oophorectomy uh, in addition to the colon when people are uh, diagnosed with Lynch. Our phone number is also our text number if you'd like to call in and chat. In fact, uh, someone wanted to and, and did not want to go on the air, but they were talking about, and I wanted to get to this, as far as food or activities, are there uh, either either issue of, of our diet or any activities that's a plus or minus as far as colon cancer goes? Well, uh, like many uh, medical issues, we've definitely identified obesity as a risk factor, Denny, for many cancers. And colorectal cancer is one of those. Interestingly, smoking increases risk of cancer as well. Exactly how that affects the gut uh, is yet to be determined, but uh, we definitely see it as higher. And there's unquestionably a relationship with diet. High fat, high protein, low fiber uh, increases your risk of colorectal cancer. So it is important to stay active. It's important to keep your overall health status as uh, optimized as one can. And while these won't definitely uh, eliminate the risk of you getting cancer, 
it can decrease that risk. All right. Uh, I'm just trying to wade through all of these uh, text messages, and we appreciate uh, our listeners joining in. Here's another one, uh, Dr. Spencer. Can a colonoscopy be done without anesthesia? Um, Yes. I think increasingly uh, it becomes a little bit more difficult to get this accomplished just because of the way the the systems work. Um, And we've got some better medications now, Danny, to uh, help facilitate the exam. So um, I will often ask patients why they don't want to use that. Uh, Propofol is being used uh, in uh, many situations. Uh, We have our anesthetist working with us in the room, uh, utilize the propofol. It's a very uh, excellent uh, sedative, kind of on and off with minimal uh, side effects. And so, uh, yeah, it it makes it more comfortable for patients. Um, I do, however, do uh, colonoscopies periodically without any uh, medications. And uh, obviously, if the patient's in otherwise good health, um, it's something that can be done and uh, just have to be prepared. You'll, you'll definitely get a little cramping, particularly as we get around some of the corners, but but it can be accomplished. No, thank you. <laughs> I, 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 I want to relax. In fact, it was I was surprised because it's been years since uh, the colonoscopy I had, the first one. And uh, the doctor, is, I think after, it, it was... I don't even think it was 20 minutes. Generally speaking, if there's no trouble, I wanted to ask you this. How long does a colonoscopy take? Forget the preparation, but just the actual process. Well, the the actual scope itself, from insertion to uh, hitting the cecum and then pulling out, probably should take somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 minutes for most patients. But that's not everybody. Uh, some people, the colon's fairly straight and easy to maneuver. Others, it's uh, much more uh, contorted, and that can make it more difficult. We were talking about the prep earlier, Denny, and if the prep isn't good, that can make it more difficult to visualize well. I would say one of the things that we have noted and one of the parameters we look at in terms of a quality uh, procedure is the prep, but also what we call the withdrawal time. So we know that when Physicians take six minutes or more to evaluate the bowel on the way out. Uh, we can pick up increased numbers of polyps. So it's important that uh, people do uh, an appropriate withdrawal and visualize the bowel well. Different question this morning, uh, one you can relate to certainly. Please talk about colostomy. How is it done? Why is it done? And is it permanent? Um, a multitude of questions within this. So a colostomy is bringing out a portion of the colon, uh, what people often refer to as a bag. A stoma is another term for it. An ileostomy is when we do a similar type of procedure with the small bowel. So if somebody has a bowel obstruction, and uh, this could be from benign disease like diverticular problems or from an obstructing cancer. Sometimes we can go in and remove that primary problem. Sometimes we just need to divert and treat that primary problem. And in those situations where we're diverting or don't feel it's safe to hook the bowel back up, 
we will bring out a stoma or a colostomy or ileostomy. Um, many of those can be reversed. In some situations, a, a stoma is a permanent situation, and that depends a little bit on, again, why we're doing the procedure, age, and overall health status of the patient. All right. Interesting question. Uh, do redheads need more or less anesthesia? It doesn't say male or female, but have you ever heard of such a thing? Um, yes, I've heard. I don't know that we have any data to support that one way or the other, um, at least not in my experience. How's that, Danny? Okay. This uh, listener, Dr. Spencer, uh, says, I've had three colonoscopies. I had to do uh, double preps every time due to having a torturous colon. After my last colonoscopy, the doctor noted that I should consider a double prep next time. Since that's exactly what I've been doing, what do I need to do? I'm concerned about it as I've had polyps every time, all benign. But I was told after my last colonoscopy to have my next colonoscopy in three years. You think I need a triple procedure? (laughs) Well, I haven't had too many people who needed triple prep, Denny, and, and that can get into a little bit of trouble with the dehydration, electrolyte abnormalities. But as I suggested earlier, in order to see particularly some of the smaller or flat polyps, we call sessile-serrated adenomas, uh, having a good prep is absolutely critical. And if somebody has a tortuous bowel, um, this isn't something you'd necessarily know, uh, or somebody is chronically constipated, um, you may need this kind of double prep. And essentially, it's it's doing a similar type of prep for the one day, for two days ahead of time. I think one of the other things people need to be aware is, uh, you know, you have to clear what you eat. So if you prepare a little bit ahead of time, a little lower residue diet, plenty of fluids, that can help make the preparation process a little bit easier for people as well. You know, as you know, doctor, uh, over the years, I mean, so many of us, male or female, are hesitant to get that first colonoscopy, really hesitant. How do you convince someone that uh, that it's not, you know, it, it really is not a big issue at all? I was surprised, A, at how long it took, uh, how little it took, really, as far as time goes, uh, and uh, and if you're if you're as they say clean as a whistle, what's the time frame for your next one if you're within that uh, proper age uh, group? So if the bowel is well visualized and you have no polyps and a otherwise unremarkable family history, so your average risk, we recommend follow up at ten years. The follow up can vary depending on the type of polyp, the number of polyps and the size of polyps as to when people should have that next one. So on some occasions, we will see people back at one year because they have what we call dysplastic changes or precancerous changes in larger polyps. We can follow them up in a year if we're concerned that we didn't get the polyp completely removed. Um, If people have Three or more polyps following up at three years is uh, not uncommon. Uh, The typical follow-up for three or less polyps is around five years. 
But this is an area that actually is changing a little bit, Denny, and as we're learning more about the types of polyps and the risk of those polyps becoming cancer, we're going to see some patients going out five or even seven years uh, in between their uh, colonoscopies. We're up against the clock here. We're going to do a bit of a break here. Dr. Spencer, when we come back, uh, a texture wants to know a couple of good questions, I think. Uh, first of all, what are the symptoms of colorectal cancer? That's one. Uh, actually, three questions. Why stop colonoscopies at 75? And the final question from this listener, does the large intestine, probably related to the age, does the large intestine become more fragile? We'll uh, pick up on uh, those questions when we come back. If you're just joining us, Dr. Michael Spencer, colorectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities, answering your questions this morning here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Stay with us. Good Sunday morning to you. 60 degrees, our Twin City temperature reading heading for a high near 85. Today could be 91 on Monday. We're in the midst of our health hour. Denny and for Susie, she'll be back next week. We have uh, the pleasure of talking with Dr. Michael Spencer, who's a uh, colorectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities, answering your questions, and we have many of them, Dr. Spencer. And, uh, and I know our time is so limited here. And again, we appreciate you getting up here on Sunday morning, helping us out. Uh, When we broke, the questions were, what are the symptoms of colorectal cancer? There's an important question. And why stop at uh, 75 years old for colonoscopy? I'll start, Denny, with that why stop at 75 years of age. And I'm going to reflect back to uh, last week's show. Uh, Susie had Dr. Kirshnan, the new CMO at HCMC last week. And uh, he was talking about community health. The reason we are doing these types of procedures is to address community health and prevent these types of problems. Unfortunately, COVID has taught us that our system is a little bit more fragile than uh, we thought. We have uh, shortages of nurses and docs and uh, uh, techs and so forth, and it makes it difficult for people to get in, get access. So we're trying to provide the best preventative services at least around colorectal care as our topic today. And in order to do that, we are trying to get the people who are at greatest risk and try to identify those who it's safe to do the procedure. So for those who are at average risk, Denny, the recommendation is to no longer do average risk screening after age 75. If one has a family history or a personal history of cancer, or uh, polyps, we will often continue screening at five-year intervals or thereabouts for those specific issues. But we're talking about a process where a polyp forming and then eventually turning into cancer may take five, ten years or thereabouts. So we're looking to prevent something that's likely to occur in the future. And so to utilize the community resources and identify those who are at risk and provide for the best of the community, that's kind of where those numbers and and so forth come from. And sadly, or maybe not sadly, but because of the change in our health systems, we used to have a primary care doc who knew us very well. You could talk to that physician and ask he or she whether or not you were at elevated risk or not, 
it's important that people know that and, and can help their care providers these days understand those issues as well, uh, because many times we don't know. And uh, say we used to rely on our primary care physician. I would encourage the audience to get a primary care doc, visit with them, make sure they know your history, and they can help uh, with making some of those decisions. Going through a colonoscopy, as we've talked about today, is also risky and uh, it's not the easiest process, particularly as we get older and dehydration and other potential issues with the procedure can occur. So we don't want to put people at elevated risk through a procedure unless they absolutely need it either. As far as the symptoms of colorectal cancer, one of the reasons we do screening is that many people don't have much in the way of symptoms until the problem becomes more significant. Um, we think about changes in bowel habits, decreased caliber of stool, bleeding with bowel movements, uh, excessive uh, bloating, or uh, again, significant uh, cramping, discomfort, uh, besides of an obstruction, are all kinds of things that people should visit with their primary about and uh, see whether or not they need assessments if they're having any of those kinds of symptoms. Does that help address it, Denny? Uh, you, you did indeed, Doctor, and just in time, too, because we're just about out of time. What, what a pleasure it has been uh, visiting you once again. I know I said that at the top of the hour that I've uh, known uh, Dr. Spencer for years but had not seen him for years. And uh, if you're on the fence about getting a colonoscopy, do it. It's, it's not bad at all, and you will be so glad that you took care of it. And by the way, I've heard from people, that after the prep, I thought, hey, this fasting is not too bad of an idea anyway. Dr. Spencer, thanks so much. You've answered so many questions this morning. We appreciate that. And by the way, there's a text as we head out of here from a friend of yours saying, telling us, let's see if I can find it here before we head out, that Anoka County is mighty proud of Dr. Spencer. So there. Well, that, that's great to hear, Denny. And thank you. And thank you to you and Susie for having this uh health discussion every Sunday. I think it's a great to educate our community. So I appreciate so it much. again, Denny. Thanks. Thanks again. Dr. Michael Spencer, who's a colorectal surgeon here in the Twin Cities. Stand by for Bruce and Peg and more of your money from Wealth Enhancement Group. Enjoy the day today. We'll get some a lot of sunshine. We need the rain. A high of 85 today. We'll be up to 91 on Monday. It's 60 right now on CCO. Stay with us.